Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. In the last few weeks, we have looked together at God's promise of sending a son. First, he promised Abraham that he would send a son in a miraculous way, through whom would come all of the promises of the covenant. That son was Isaac, and yet it was a promise that pointed toward the greater son, Jesus. And then we saw how that son was born. Born of a mother 90 years old, a father 100 years old. And in that child, again, in his birth, we saw uh, foretold the coming of Christ. And then we saw how that son, how God commanded Abraham to sacrifice him. Demonstrating the purpose of the coming of the greater son, Jesus. Well, today we're going to conclude that brief series by looking at the fruits of of the coming of that promised Son, Jesus. And we do that by looking together at Romans 8, starting in verse 31. The Apostle Paul there asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Beloved saints of God in Christ, throughout December, as we've considered those passages about the promised Son, we have anticipated the significance of God sending His own Son to deliver us, a son born miraculously in whom God himself would dwell among us, a son in whom all of God's promises would be firmly established and fulfilled, a son who was born to be sacrificed on behalf of the people whom God chose. And it's all of that that leads us to this text. In his letter to the church at Rome, Paul carefully explores the significance of God the Son. In the chapters leading up to this, he very explicitly and broadly explains the misery of the sin into which every single person among us has been born. Whether raised in the covenant community or raised among pagans, we all end up in the same boat and that's not one of them knows God. Not one of them seeks after the Lord in and of themselves. But then he talks about how God 
in order to be both just and the justifier of those who have sinned, sent his Son. And he describes in great detail the significance of the sending of his Son, how he came to free us from our sin, how he came us to free us from our slavery to sin. And finally, Paul explains how we who are joined to Christ through faith in him have become God's children. And all of that leads him to ask God's people, what now? How are we to process all of this? How are we to understand all that we have considered? And the answer, according to Paul, is quite simple. God's love in sending His Son gives us abundant reason to rejoice. And that's what we see in this text here. In sending His Son, God gave us confidence, God gave us comfort, God gave us abundant reason to rejoice. And as we consider that theme, we're going to see, first of all, how God's love in sending His Son answers our doubts And then secondly, how in sending His Son, He ensures our perseverance. So we begin by considering how God's love in sending Christ answers our doubts. And He shows us that through a skillful use of questions. The first question is sort of the theme question of this whole text. What then shall we say to these things? Everything else in this text is meant to answer that question. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say concerning all the sin that we've committed and the misery into which we were born? What shall we say in terms of how God sent His Son and all that that Son did in order to justify us and free us and cause us to become God's adopted children? What then shall we say to these things? Who shall be against us? He asks. He wants us to pause and consider for a moment our enemies. Who might oppose us? Who might wish to do us harm? There are those who want to harm us. People of the world who hate the God whom Christians reflect. Demons and dark powers who despise those who love what is good. Not to mention Satan who is still stinging from his defeat at the hand of God the Son. And Paul doesn't even mention them, does he? He alludes to them. But he asks, who can be against us if God is for us? If God is for us, if, as Psalm 46 confesses, he is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, if he is on our side, if he is our Father, Who then can be against us? They don't even bear mention. They don't even bear naming. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is none. If He is our King, if He is our Savior, if He has become our Father, who can be against us? They are as nothing. And more than that, if God is for us, What need will we truly have? I mean, sure, God is on our side. He is our ally and our king. But what will he provide for us? We have needs, don't we? This time of year, we certainly see them. The bills pile up. 
the needs arise. We've seen within our congregation grief and cancer and struggles and hospitalizations and injuries and wounds. And Who will provide for us? Who will meet our needs? Paul asks concerning all things. Will God give us all things, really? All our physical needs, all our mental and spiritual needs? And yet even as he asks the question, Paul is able to answer, noting what God has already given us. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like Abraham, our heavenly father did not withhold his only begotten son, his beloved son, from being a sacrifice for our sins. Now, if he gave us that kind of a gift, if he caused him to be delivered up that we might be saved, will he withhold all these lesser things? Certainly not. Certainly not. He will not deny us even the smallest thing that we truly need. But what about others? What, what might they do to us? Who, he asks in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? But notice how he refers to us. Not who shall bring any charge against those who have chosen the Lord, who shall bring any charge against those who have cast their lot with... No, no, no. He doesn't even look at what we have chosen, at what we have decided. We are God's elect, those whom God chose, those whom God set apart from before the creation of the world for Himself, those to whom, or those whom He had entrusted to His Son. Who will bring any charge against us? Who will lay a claim of wrongdoing against us? Who will try to bring us before God and condemn us? It is God who justifies. You see, that's the answer. If God chose us to justify us, to make us His own, that's what He says just before this text. He says... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Now who will bring a charge against them? Whom God chose, whom God loves, whom God sent His Son to redeem. There's no one. No one can condemn us. No one can make us guilty in God's sight. After all, it is Christ who died. The beloved Son of God came to die for us. When He was born, when He was laid in the manger, it was with the cross in mind. He died so that we might live. And then He rose, triumphant over the cross triumphant over our sin, triumphant over the grave. He ascended into heaven where now He intercedes on our behalf. He prays daily. We'll talk about this tonight, Lord willing. He prays for all our needs, asking the Father to meet every single one of them. Who then is to condemn the people for whom He lived, died, rose, ascended and prays? There is no one. Now, why does Paul ask all of these questions? What's the message there? 
He asks, beloved, because we need to see that Jesus, the Son of God, answers our every doubt. My friends, we are weak. And every one of us endures times of doubt. We doubt our worthiness to enter God's presence. We doubt the sincerity of the faith by which we cling to Him. We doubt our right to worship God because of the sins that we've committed. We doubt even whether it's right for folks like us to pray. And Satan fans those flames. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to fear. He wants us to to slink away ashamed. But our Father in heaven wants us to know we have no reason to doubt He loved us enough to choose us, to send His Son for us, to accomplish absolutely everything necessary to reconcile us to Himself. There is not a single need that we have. There is not a single enemy who confronts us, who can separate us from the love of this God. And that should cause us to stand with confidence before the Lord. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that in Christ He has done. We need have no doubt, no fear, no worry whatsoever. We are free to rejoice in the Lord. Have I committed sins of which I am deeply ashamed? Absolutely, 100%. So of every one of us. But Christ is greater. His love is undimmed and unquenchable. And he ushers us into the presence of our Heavenly Father with joy, with celebration, with worship. And that is why we celebrate on Christmas. That is why it's such a joyous day. Even though we know that the cross ends his life, or perhaps better, because we know that the cross ends his life, and that the tomb later will be empty. Because of that demonstration of love, we know we have no need to doubt, no need to fear, no need to worry. We can rejoice. However, immediately, Paul brings us another question. A question of a slightly different character. And he leads, uses that question to lead us into a twofold confession of how secure our standing before God is. Here's the question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the previous questions were all important. Who will oppose us? What will be withheld from us? Who will bring charges against us? Who who might condemn us? But now, now Paul raises the question of Christ's love for us. And all those other questions melt into insignificance. Because all those other questions were answered on the basis of Christ's love for us. Because Christ loves us, no one can condemn us. No one can bring charges against us. No one can cause us to fear that we won't find our needs met. But how do we know Christ will continue to love us? And how can we know that we will continue to trust in Him? What might separate us from this Savior in whom all our hope is found? Paul gives us a list of possibilities, candidates for separating us from the love of Christ. Might tribulation or distress cut us off from his love? As it might cut us off from the love of fair-weather friends. Might persecution separate us from Christ's love? As it separates men from beliefs that they hold lightly. 
Might famine or nakedness, might our poverty or our weakness or our unworthiness cause us to reject him? Or how about danger of the sort with which life in this world is absolutely filled? Might danger cause Christ to desert us? Or might such stress prompt us to desert him? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Brothers and sisters, the the list that Paul leaves there is not random. These are things that do separate men and women from each other. These are things that break relationships which allegedly are founded in love. These are challenges that melt the infatuation that's often mistaken for love. These are the threats that force us to make hard choices, hard decisions. And then Paul quotes Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he cite that passage? It's from Psalm 44, and it's a prayer of confession and lament. The psalmist confesses that his faith in God is undimmed, that in the Lord he is blameless, and yet he's facing all this persecution, all this hardship, all this pain. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, all of this pain, all of this suffering, it's not because of something we've done. If we love you, if we belong to you, then why are we being so mistreated, he's asking. You see, Paul wants us to remember that it's not just the wicked who suffer in this life. Oftentimes, those who belong to the Lord, those who put their hope in Him, those who regularly worship Him, suffer and struggle and are afflicted. In fact, Jesus even said that we would be. In John 15, he said this world will hate us because it hated him. In John 16, he said that we will have trouble while we're in this world. uh, 2 Timothy 3 says that everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's not a question of whether we will endure hardship and struggle. It's just a question of when and how much. But the real question is, will any of that hardship, will any of that suffering separate us from the love of Christ? Does any of it have the power to cause us to fall away? Does any of it have the power to cause Christ to leave us? And Paul answers twice, in two different ways. First, he flat out says no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word that's rendered more than conquerors, that's a unique word. It's the only place in the New Testament that it's found. It is an emphatic, powerful word that indicates that we are super triumphant. We are tremendously triumphant. And the way that we are triumphant, the means of our victory is through him who loved us. We're super victors in Christ. He has triumphed. He has overcome the world. And because we are united to Him, we are victorious over anything that would afflict us, anything that would harm us, anything that would seek to destroy us. So that's Paul's first answer and our first answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, whatever might attempt has already been overcome. Whatever might try has already been defeated. But then Paul gives a second answer which builds on that first. He gives us another list. 
A list of powerful things. Things beyond our control. It covers our existence. Neither life nor death. It covers mighty beings, angels or rulers. It covers all the contingencies. Things present and things to come. It covers all that surrounds us. Powers and heights and depths. And then in case anything was missed, anything else in all the creation... Put all of that together, Paul says, and still, not one of those things, not all of those things together, none of it has the power to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who or what shall separate us from His love? The answer is absolutely nothing in all the creation has that power. Folks, this is the assurance that God gives us that we will persevere. Do you ever doubt your ability to stand firm in faith? Most of us do experience at some point those doubts. I mean, we're weak. Our resolve to repent of sin is like our resolve to diet in the new year. It starts out well-intentioned and strong. but Pretty soon we're snacking. Pretty soon we see our weakness. When it comes to a diet resolve, no big deal. But when it comes to our resolve to repent, we start questioning. How real is my faith? How significant is my hope? Do I really cling to Christ the way I ought to? I, I thought my faith was real, but is it? And we start doubting, we start worrying, we start wondering, and he answers no. You are more than conquerors through Christ. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ. Or perhaps you doubt that God could love the likes of you. You look at those sins. You look at those frequent backslidings. You look at those those things that you've said, the ways that you've hurt people. The countless times you've fallen back into those same old things. I don't know about you, but there's times I look at myself in the mirror and think, how could my wife ever love the likes of me? And if, if it would be hard for her... How much more for God who is holy? And we start letting those doubts, those fears, those worries come in. The sad, simple fact is we are too weak. We are too sinful to deserve God's love. But that doesn't matter. Because the message here is that it's not about us. That's what Christmas Celebrating the birth of God the Son, given in love by God the Father. That is what Christmas reminds us. It's not about us. It's not about what we do, what we accomplish, what we earn, what we're worthy of. It's about what God has done for us. These lists that Paul gives us here, they can be expanded upon infinitely. Countless are the things that strive to separate us from God. Our sins and the sins of others. Sickness and depression and grief. Hatred and the grudges that people bear. And pride and passion and pleasure and people and demons. And the list goes on and on. And yet in the face of all of it, God assures us, no. None of it can succeed. Because God in love sent His Son for you. That is our assurance. That is our undying joy. He loved us so much 
that he sent Jesus to be born as one of us. He loved us so much that he caused Jesus to suffer everything that your sins earned. He loved you so much that he caused Jesus to rise up triumphant, to ascend into heaven, and to sit at his right hand asking continually for everything you might ever need. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? There is nothing. Nothing and less than nothing. So what then is the application of the manger, of the nativity, of the birth of God's Son? What is to be our response to Mary's miraculous boy? It is this. You must know that there is not a single legitimate cause for you to doubt the love of God. Why else would He send His Son? Why else would He work in your heart the faith to trust in Him? So if you believe that this is true, then believe it is true for you. Not just for those other people. Not just for those, those better people. It's, it's what He gave to me. What He accomplished for me. What He did to demonstrate His love for me. And because He has, therefore you must rejoice. You must rejoice in the abundant, overflowing love of your Heavenly Father. You must rejoice in the birth of His Son, which is the greatest gift that has ever been given to you. You must rejoice in the power of the Spirit who has taught you to trust in Him. Rejoice, children of God, for your Creator, your Judge, your King, loves you so much that He sent His Son to ensure that you would be His child forever. Know that without a doubt. Refuse to give ear to the tempter and rejoice. Rejoice at what he has done. Rejoice in the opportunity to testify to one another. This is how great the love of God is. Amen. Beloved, let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of your goodness and your grace. We stand in awe that you would love the likes of us. And yet you demonstrated that love so powerfully, so convincingly that we cannot believe otherwise. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to stand firm in our faith and that you would cause us to rejoice, especially this day, but also in the days to come, testifying boldly to what you have done and how wonderful a confidence it gives us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? We know because you have taught us that there is no one, there is nothing. And so we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.